0: Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor of the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese. In our bi-monthly interviews, we converse with philosophers about the ideas expressed in their newly published books. Today's interview is with Miguel de Bestigy, professor of philosophy at the University of Warwick. His latest book is Aesthetics After Metaphysics, From Mimesis to Metaphor, just out from Routledge. What is the nature of art? The question involves understanding the relation between art and reality and what we're expressing when we use an artistic means of communication rather than ordinary language or everyday craft. De Beestig provides a framework for understanding art that stands in contrast to a metaphysics that posits a sensible world of experience and a supersensible world of forms or essences one in which art, even non-representational and conceptual art, in some cases, exists as a mimetic go-between. De Bezdigy suggests instead that art captures an aspect of reality that is literally there, an excess of the sensible, that is typically hidden by our everyday practical ways of interacting with and experiencing reality. Our grasp of these features is metaphorical, in that they're shared by things that are usually put in distinct categories— but it is an impoverished notion of metaphor that prompts us to think that what is metaphorical is not literally true. In this richly suggestive and provocative volume, de Bezdygui draws on thinkers from Plato and Nietzsche to Merleau-Ponty and Danto, and discusses works by a wide range of artists, including Proust, de Kooning, and Chayida, to illustrate his view. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Miguel de Hello. Hi. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Thank you. Uh, I'm really excited to be talking with you about your new book, uh, Aesthetics After Metaphysics, From Mimesis to Metaphor. It's a a short book, um, but it's just packed with a lot of provocative and very interesting philosophical ideas, um, and it covers a great deal of territory, um, from Heidegger and Deleuze, who are part of your um, background, more than more than mine in particular, uh, but also a number of uh, interesting um, artists that I'm not aware of. Uh, Chilida, for example, Chida, um, but as well more familiar uh, figures such as um, de Kooning or Proust. Um, before we get into the details of the book, i um, I just wanted to um, have you say something a little bit about uh, your background on the interest um, uh, of this topic um, of art and the nature of art um, and the genesis of this particular book.
1: Right, yes. Well, the the book um, that you mentioned actually began with a systematic study of Post, Uh and it's an extension of that other book that was also just uh, translated, which I wrote in French initially. Uh, and in French, it had the title, it had the title, if I translated in English, The Joy of Proust, but it's translated as uh, Proust as Philosopher, and it has the subtitle uh, Towards a, an Aesthetics sort of Metaphor. And it's really when trying to accommodate what i found Proust saying and doing with metaphor in a larger philosophical framework that i started writing aesthetics uh, after metaphysics and so it begins with uh, it began with a systematic study of Proust with what Proust has to say about metaphor in his great novel but also in above all with his own metaphors and what i found out is that um, What he has to say, and what he does with metaphor, is the traditional framework in which metaphor has classically been thought. And that's a framework that's essentially Aristotelian. And I try to show in in the book on Paulson, and I go over this again, but very briefly in Aesthetics After Metaphysics, that. The, the classical conception of metaphor that runs through very much the history, not just of philosophy, but poetics and rhetoric, is essentially Aristotelian. Mm-hmm. And what Post says and does with language, uh, with metaphor that he very interestingly characterises as the essence of style, so for him, metaphor is style, uh, well, simply doesn't fit with that classical understanding of metaphor And Aristotle, in the Poetics, defines it as, um, well, in the following terms, he says metaphor consists in giving the thing a name that belongs to something else. And he says the transference being either from genus to species or from species to genus or from species to species or on grounds of analogy. Mm -hmm. And later on, metaphor will be... Restricted to the movement from a literal meaning to a figurative one, and most uh, often by way of analogy. Now, what's interesting is that Proust's own definition is actually quite different. And what Proust says is that, well, by metaphor, we should understand something very different. We should understand the ability, he says, to see the beauty of something in something else. Right? And what that means is that for him, there isn't anything intrinsically beautiful about any specific object, but it's the ability to make a connection between two objects that are most often separated in space and time that brings them together in a way that is unusual, and yet that we're able to recognise as true, that characterises uh, metaphor. And what I try to do then in aesthetics, after metaphysics, is to provide a philosophical and specifically, specifically ontological uh, framework in which to think metaphor understood in that way.
0: Yeah. So the the um, the idea of truth. Um, um, and, and what sort of truth um, art is is pointing at or expressing is, is nice. seems to be the the core of of the the book as I as I understood its argument. Um, yeah. So let, to work into that um, that idea of, of truth, um, you begin by raising what you call the, the question of art, and and I take that to be a question of um, what it is and and how art relates to what else there is in the world or or in reality. As we as we will ordinarily say, um, so could you maybe explain first this this core question, the question of art as you understand it?
1: Well, the the, the, the question of art um, as a whole, I'm not entirely sure about. What I really started with is a certain experience of art through metaphor. So it was really rooted in. In language and in literature in particular but then I think it extended into something much broader and what I was really taken by is is the extent to which the um, experience and domain that I think metaphor opens up um, just doesn't fit with the way in which philosophy has classically understood art and philosophy has classically understood art in connection with a certain conception of truth
0: yeah.
1: a, con- a conception of truth that is essentially of an intelligible order right of a conceptual order and so the value of art and the and the place of art was considered only to the extent that it could be seen as a stage as it went, on the way to truth understood in that way right so this is why I say that art is essentially or rather the philosophy of art is essentially um, platonic or platonistic, if you will, because it is seen as uh, a kind of mediation uh, between the world of the sensible, the sensible world and the supersensible world, the intelligible world, the world of ideas and concept. And it's only insofar as it allows one to make that bridge between the sensible and the intelligible that it gains its, its value. And I try to to show how that metaphysical conception of art and the value of art doesn't do justice to what we actually experience in most artworks. And of course, there is a whole tradition uh, that uh, of art that that falls within the what I call the mimetic paradigm. But there's also another. Tradition and sometimes even the same works themselves that can be seen in a very different light, so it's that domain of experience that I wanted to retain um, and connect with the concept of truth, but of course a different concept of truth
0: um, so the this notion of mimesis when when you uh in the book when you began by um saying that in in some senses art is still fundamentally mimetic yeah, yeah. um you know my my first response to that was well, how could that possibly be you know after Kandinsky or or mm-hmm. Warhol or, or even conceptual art um and as i read along i i sort of realized um uh well first of all you give a very nice um um Analysis of the different ways in which mimesis has been understood from Plato and, and Aristotle. Um, so maybe you could explain uh, the, the view that you are responding to a little bit in more depth, the, the mimetic sure. metaphysics that, that you think is, as you just mentioned, uh, is just not adequate to the, to the phenomena.
1: Yes. Now, uh, to be perfectly clear, I, I don't say and will never say that art is fundamentally mimetic. right? But what I do say is that mimesis is the fundamental concept with which, up until Nietzsche, really, philosophy thinks art. And right. I, through much of the history of philosophy, trying to show that that's the case. Now... This is very different because I think that philosophy was for a long time uh, lagging behind art and not understanding what it was actually doing, right? So it was approaching art and the experience of art from a very specific metaphysical um, standpoint and, and was trying to integrate it within a metaphysical framework, which I think much of art escaped from the start, as it were. Now, that being said, I also try and show how some abstract art is still mimetic and still Platonistic, and I'm thinking here precisely of Kandinsky, whom you mentioned, mm-hmm. but so of someone like Mondrian, because there's a whole tradition in art, and going back to the late Renaissance, I think, that thinks of mimesis as imitation not of actual things as we see them in the world but as imitation of pure forms and ideas right and so for me the distinction between imitative and non-imitative, non-imitative art doesn't coincide absolutely or doesn't coincide necessarily with the distinction between figurative art and abstract art okay that's good for me, there's an abstract there's a form of abstract art that remains completely mimetic or Platonistic. And in the same way, and this is one I try to show by uh, with some sort of Renaissance painters, but also with de Kooning, who's somewhere in between, but there are some painters who are f- seemingly figurative and yet not mimetic. So the, the, the dividing line for me is not between figuration and abstraction. Mm-hmm that's not the key that's not the key distinction i don't know if I sort of answered your, your question
0: well, maybe you could say what what in Kandinsky is mimetic
1: well um i was so who who knows whether there's any justification in uh in what in what I saw um in Kandinsky, but it seems to me that his whole quest is a very um, spiritual and, and even religious one, and is one that, that aims to arrive at certain pure forms that are indeed a form of negation of the sensible. So, so that art, even though art remains, of course, uh, steeped in um, materiality and sensibility, uh, what it is pointing to is something that transcends that. And and that for me remains a very sort of platonistic. I see.
0: So you um, now, on your view, you um, you're aiming at a metaphysics uh, uh, in which you have the the hypersense, the hypersensible, which is yeah. somehow between the sensible and the insensible, if if you want to maintain that distinction to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so there's a couple of very key um, concepts that you introduced. One is this this idea of the realm of the hypersensible, yeah. um, and and a and that there's a special sense of vision, not not you know ordinary sense perception, but but some sort of artistic vision that is specific to how we access that that realm of the hypersensible,
1: yeah.
0: um, and that art as a result is is metaphorical rather mm-hmm. than mimetic, and that. Um, And this introduces the concept of um, uh, a a concept of metaphor in which um, it's presenting a truth, a a literal truth, but not not the usual sensible literal truth that we're thinking about um, when we're not talking about art. Um, So um, those three concepts of, you know, the hypersensible, the sort of vision that we have, and then and then the sense of metaphor, of course, that's the key. Um, that sort of brings everything together um, maybe you could say something about you know what the hypersensible is as as you put it an excess of the sensible Right. Um, and then we'll go through the others as well
1: yes now to be perfectly honest I mean I, I had doubts about this very notion of the hypersensible because as far as I know it's not one that you can find anywhere else so the idea of creating kind of notion to characterize or to designate a domain of of, uh, experience and, and reality is is always problematic. But what I meant by that is that indeed the um, domain of experience and reality in which metaphor, as I understand it, is rooted, and therefore uh, at least a certain kind of art is rooted, simply escapes that distinction that philosophy has always operated with or for a very long time, which is the distinction between the sensible and the supersensible or the intelligible. So in that respect, the hypersensible is not somewhere in between the two, but it's altogether outside. It sort of bypasses and cuts across that distinction. So that's why I, I spend quite a bit of time in the first bar part of the book trying to deconstruct that metaphysical paradigm to show how a, uh, how it's been operative and to show its force, but then to really distinguish it from what I call the hypersensible, which simply cannot be accommodated within the classical distinction between the sensible and the hypersensible. So, what do I what do I mean by this excess of the sensible itself? Well, it's um it's precisely a certain experience of the sensible, a certain relation to the sensible world that is opened up in art and in art only and that doesn't point beyond itself towards something like the intelligible world the world of pure concepts the world of forms the, the, the world of philosophical truth mm-hmm. and yet I think there is uh, an experience of truth in, in that but one that is very different from the the, the, pl- the platonic one if you will now it, it means that we need to redefine, in a way, what what we mean by um, by sensation, by matter, by vision, which you mentioned, and which maybe I could I could move on to to explain a bit further. Um, is that is that all right?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's fine.
1: Um, now, the, the way in which I introduce um, artistic vision is by contrasting it with ordinary perception, and I think another. Um, classical sort of uh, connection that's been made, which for me is problematic, is the one precisely between perception and artistic vision. As if uh, the vision of the artist, the way in which the artist brings something into the work of art, which we perceive, were simply on the on a on a plane or on a level that was consistent with ordinary perception, and. There, I really believe that our ordinary perception of the world is one that is overdetermined by practical as well as theoretical concerns, um, so that our orientation in the world is one that is uh, pre-directed, if you will, pre-formatted by the way in which we want to uh, act in the world, act on the world, and the way in which theory also um uh, comes into line with this this um, hands-on approach to the world. And artistic vision, so this is what I call sort of monoscopic perception if you will, right? Mm. Uh, we, we, we zero in on the world and that is the way in which we perceive the world. Whereas it seems to me that artistic vision and specifically metaphorical vision requires a um, how can I say, a, a stereoscopic vision, one that that, uh, that forces the eye to look at two different places two different times uh, at the same time and therefore to arrive at uh, an experience of the world that is indeed extraordinary right that is not rooted in perception in the way that i think it normally Operates So I think artistic vision in that respect opens up the world in a way that is different from the way in which we normally see the world. But it opens up the world in a way that is nonetheless not subjective or arbitrary. And that is why I think we can recognize um, a certain truth within artworks and metaphors in particular uh, So So, there's this strange encounter. I think we we recognize something as being there, and yet we say, oh, I had never seen it in that way. So it's that it's that sort of double recognition that I find that I find interesting, because when we find if we if we again think of, of metaphor as as exemplifying this, Relation in metaphor. We, when we read a good metaphor, we don't think of it. Oh, this is just you know Coleridge or whoever um, drawing up a nice metaphor, but we see the world in the way that he sees it, and we recognize it as part of the world itself. And yeah. therefore, it's not purely something that's on the side of the subject, right? But. Something is being said about reality itself.
0: So, um, um, one of the interesting um, uh, things that you, you said about this this different sort of, of looking at the world you you contrasted it with uh, with phenomenological aesthetics and the, and uh, Merleau Ponty and that, that whole tradition of of um, of phenomenology. Um, which which is very rooted in the practical and you know seeing things as tools and and you know seeing things in terms of the way we we use them in practical life and um, and you contrast that with with this new sort of of vision um yep. Uh, right. It, and um, so w- w- how how is it that we we do this? I mean, obviously, we don't. Um, it, it it can't just be a stepping back the way phenomenologists, you know, uh, want us to step back. Um, so how how is it that we that we attain this other sort of of access to reality?
1: Right, right. Now, um, can, I, can I just, in connection with phenomenology, that mm-hmm. people would need to distinguish, as it were, between various strands of phenomenology, and I try to do that in, in the book, and the most interesting character for me in that respect um, is, is mm-hmm. Merleau-Ponty, who begins his work with, with the phenomenology of perception, as you know, but who, later on in his work, moves away from the primacy of perception, to an extent, I think, and towards what he calls the visible and mm-hmm. vision. And then he becomes much closer to what I call vision, uh, he, and he becomes closer. He comes closer to um, what what I call the hypersensible through his discussion of what he calls the flesh, and his notion of the, the, the vision and the visible, which he recognizes uh, aren't reducible to the Platonic sensible or to the world as an object of pure perception. Now, to, to answer uh, the, the uh, second part of your question regarding how this is done or how this comes about, well, I think we have to recognize the fact that um, it is a form of construction. That is to say, the, 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 uh, that kind of vision, I think, does not exist outside of the artistic procedure so that it's not as if, and this is why I think it's a a radical break with mimesis, because it's not as if we could, having seen it in the work of art, we could see it, as it were, in reality outside the work of art. So we see something with the work of art that we recognize as real or true, and yet it's not something that we could have ever seen without the work of art. Do you see what I mean? So I think it has a um, a distinct relation to reality uh, and and requires this stepping back from a practical, ordinary perception into um, a form of vision that requires a transformation. So I think one could still um, account for it in phenomenological terms by looking at the specific form of vision that um, Art requires, but one that indeed requires a a modification or a transformation of ordinary perception. Why? Because ordinary perception, again, I think, is uh, is uh, in space and time and directed towards a specific kind of object. Whereas artistic vision, insofar as is metaphorical, requires a loosening if you will, of that focus uh, in space and time and requires the ability to bring together um, object, dimensions, aspects of reality that are normally separated for practical reasons so that we have connections that are made Mm
0: -hmm.
1: that that are uh, extraordinary and yet that we recognize as being part of the fabric of reality I don't know if I'm making my-
0: yes very very much um, uh, that um, I wanted to press you on on this notion of metaphor that that um, yes. that is so central to the book and, and which you've just been clarifying for me even more um, uh, so if, if you could just explain a little bit what you mean about this metaphorical um this uh the, the the metaphorical use of
1: yeah uh, yeah yeah art
0: yeah
1: um now again I think that um, the, the, the reason why and I've encountered this on on many occasions um the reason why it is I think difficult to understand metaphor in that way is because um, metaphor has again been defined in in ways that have gone um, entirely unchallenged, if you will, by Aristotle. So, if you go back to Aristotle's Poetics and then go through the history of poetics and rhetoric, you see that it's it's this with some variation. It's the same definition that's repeated uh, time and time again. But what I think is that Aristotle has a relatively poor understanding of, of metaphor, and not only a poor understanding of metaphor, but a very metaphysical one. Right? I think it is rooted in his own philosophy and his own ontology in, in particular. And I think that if we really look at how metaphors work, then we realize that there's more to them than that movement that came to be identified as the movement of metaphor from the literal to the figurative. And that, I believe, is the difference between metaphor and allegory. Uh, and I, I try and um, uh, identify the differences between metaphor, allegory, and, and symbol. And my first experience of this, again, was reading Post and you know, what he has to say about metaphors, as well as his own practice of metaphors. But but I also found confirmation of what I thought um, in, in other writers and works of art. Uh, and I... I um, do sort of close reading of certain poems by Hölderlin but I also found confirmation of what I thought uh, against on the philosophical side, against uh, harsh critics of metaphor Derrida, Heidegger and and Deleuze whom you mentioned earlier on Uh, for example in Danto's work uh, and his notion of expression in the transfiguration of the commonplace Mm -hmm. connection that he makes with metaphor so I find myself um, quite close to not so much what Danto says about metaphor, but about more about what he says about expression and transfiguration. And in that in that book, he says metaphor uh, supposes a work of transfiguration, or as I call it, a work of transposition. Um, and he on that on that uh, question, I think he is really quite interesting. I mean, he he takes the example of. Uh, Lichtenstein's Portrait of Madame Cézanne in which he says the subject is transfigured and transposed as a diagram. Now, it's that operation of transposition that I think is distinctively um, metaphorical. But he, and I think he's absolutely right, insists that that operation of transposition is not from the literal to the figurative. It's not from the sensible to the intelligible. It's not allegorical in that way. It retains... A connection with the sensible and remains within the sensible itself, and he uh, he writes to see that portrait as a diagram is to see that artist as seeing the world as a schematized structure. Right, and I, I introduce the notion of metaphor as the schema of the hypersensible, but the schema understood in the Kantian sense. But whereas schema here is not. The presentation of a concept, right? But is the presentation of um, of the sensible itself. And uh, earlier on, in his description of the painting, um, Danto sort of remarks uh, on the, in a way, on the extraordinary and even monstrous work involved in such a transfiguration um which presupposes he says uh, a certain dehumanizing of the subject and and he he goes on to say uh, as if the person were so many planes treated with no more and no less intensity and analytical subversion than a wax apple uh and and he does characterize this operation as a um, metaphorical transfiguration and he takes the other example and i'll stop here but of uh, of gainsborough's painting of uh Saint James's Mall and he, and he he writes that it is a picture of regency ladies promenading uh, but the women he says are also transfigured into flowers and the alley into a stream they float along and that i think is very close to what Proust says about elstir the painter in his novel, it's almost the same vocabulary in the way that he uh, depicts the relation between the seashore and the sea, between land and sea. Uh, and there are other instances uh, of that kind in Post's novel where, for example, Albertine is uh, is shown to not to resemble, if you will, a flower, but to have sort of flower qualities that he extracts. And we as a reader end up realizing, yes, Albertine is not just a woman, but at a certain time of day when she's asleep in a certain kind of position, she has that flower in her, as it were. And that, I think, is a, a specifically sort of artistic um, operation, that we recognize with art throughout, with the help of art. Uh, and even if we recognize it ourselves outside of art, I think it's already uh, an artistic operation because it has required this transformation of the way in which we look at the world.
0: Well, that, actually, that, uh, I mean, a couple of questions have come to mind, but one was this... Um uh, this idea that if it is a transfiguration of of the commonplace or the you know anything then um uh, in a sense uh, the hypersensible is is really all around us, and it's not just uh, not, not just artworks or is, is that incorrect?
1: No, I think it is all around us, but yet I think that um our and here I'm speaking sort of as a, as a phenomenologist, right? But our engagement with the world, the way in which normally we relate to the world, is one that um, requires that we bracket the hypersensible. Do you, do you see what I mean? Because yes. if, if I'm, I'm correct that there is a connection between perception and action, then the hypersensible is that domain of experience to which we are open, but that suspends the possibility of action. Do you
0: know what I mean? Yeah. Not. So, so to I mean, just to uh, use the 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 common example in in phenomenology of the hammer, right? We yeah. we uh, we look at the hammer and we see you know it as a as a particular. Uh, th- something that does particular work for us and, and that's inevitably or, or, or not um, the way we see it we, we see it as a tool uh, as something that will hammer in nails um, and from what I gather um, and correct me if I'm, I'm, if I'm wrong um, we, we can also look at a hammer um, in this um, with this artistic vision Yes. Um. And um. And see qualities of it that have nothing to do with, or, or that bracket exactly the sorts of practical uh, considerations in which we normally view the hammer. Yes. And bracket those. Yes. Um. And see it as a, a, with the hypersensible properties that it has. Is that is that correct?
1: That's absolutely correct. I mean that 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 is spot on because the from a philosophical perspective normally the alternative to the practical is the theoretical so you have the platonic view that says okay then we will ask about the idea of the hammer you know we relate to the hammer no longer as a tool but as uh, as an essence or as an idea we can relate to the hammer as the idea of the hammer but what you suggested absolutely rightly is that this hammer can also be seen in a way that is reducible neither to the practical nor to the theoretical but to what I call the artistic and that requires uh, a reconfiguration of the world as as hypersensible
0: and would this would this occur
1: Sorry, but, I, but at the same time I think yeah. there's a moment of creation in that right right uh, so there's there's a seeing that's also a creating it, 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 it is it is one that cannot be simply derived from sort of uh, analyzing or, you know, <laughs> taking the hammer uh, down to its sort of m- small bits and pieces and and uh, understanding it as, you know, as a hammer thing.
0: So maybe you could um... Uh- I was I was going to ask is is this a sort of operation that requires a particular context like you know uh, I, I'm thinking of somebody like Duchamp who who takes a you know an ordinary tool in his case a, a urinal and puts it in a context and and there we there we are able to see it in this you know presumably uh, in its metaphorical glory. Um, Uh, But, of course, he was, you know, an artist, and he had this context in which that was done. Mm -hmm. Um, And normally, of course, we we would, that would not occur, or or can it occur in in everyday life?
1: Well, I think if it occurs in everyday life, it's no longer everyday. I mean, I think there are moments of suspension of the everyday in everyday. And I think artists explore those moments those those tears that were in the fabric of the everyday which is uh, i think uh, taking your example of of the hammer again is mostly determined by uh, a practical relation to the world but there are moments in which this ordinary practical relation to the world can be suspended and i think the artist is possibly distinguished by his or her willingness to remain with that moment and explore that particular moment, which requires a a dissociation from the ordinary perception of the world and requires a, a certain training and a certain reinvention of what it means to see that particular object. So I think what happens with Duchamp is indeed through this displacement of the object, which is hardly metaphorical, uh, putting a big question mark on that ordinary object and inviting us to see it. I think it, in, in his instance, it's, it's very much an invitation. So it's part of the metaphorical work that is done. But I think he is locating the, the effort and the work on the side of the viewer. And he's saying, now... You do the work. This is the most ordinary and, in a way, vulgar and base object, uh, and and you have to you have to turn it into something interesting. And of course, I'm very interested in that particular in that particular gesture. But I don't think that it would qualify as metaphorical all the way. As it were, right? But but it's mm-hmm. it's certainly, it's certainly uh, a step uh, in in a way the first necessary step in order for that. Tier, uh and that suspension of the everyday to take place.
0: Um,
1: how do you how do you fit um,
0: conceptual art into this? Where you're were you not looking at a particular. Well, you may or may not be. Um,
1: uh, uh, now, uh, I, <laughs> you can imagine that having sort of set up um, a certain domain of artistic experience in the way that I have, I I also have problems with a certain conceptual art. Mm. Because everything that I try and do is to show the extent to which art forces us to remain within the sensible, but a sensible that is in excess of itself and opens up an altogether different uh, domain of sensible experience. And if conceptual art is indeed the uh, immediate connection between an object and a concept, then I think it, I think of it as it's gonna be sound paradoxical because of course I'm a philosopher, but I think of it as too philosophical in the in the platonic sense of the term. As 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 an invitation to translate a particular sensible object into something that is conceptual. So in a way I think that concepts are how like can I say that concepts are the, the enemy of art. <laughs>
0: Well so it's, is is conceptual art in, a, in an interesting sense uh, still mired in mimesis
1: well I, th- I think so. I think that uh, now we'd have to go sort of case by case because of course those right. labels you know are, are only labels, and then with um, I'm sure that you know given a conceptual artist, we can see we could see his or his work or a particular work from a completely different point of view but um, I would say uh, in a very sort of schematic and possibly reductive way that yes that that enterprise that specific program is not one that I I want to follow particularly uh, because because it it does away with what I think is. The the specific value of the of the artwork, uh, uh, especially from a philosophical point of view. You see what I mean that that, uh, mm-hmm. that it it resists the operation of the concept, and yet forces the philosopher to rethink his or her own concepts in light in light of that experience. So, I, if con- conceptual art is perhaps too driven by <laughs> by philosophy in a way,
0: yeah. Um... Uh, so I've, one question I have was um, are there artists um, you know sort of pre I don't know you know I don't know how far back to go um, that would be uh, exemplars of uh, of your view of art as as metaphor rather than um, mimesis
1: um so you mean, so you mean going back yeah
0: yeah art historically
1: um, going back in, in in history well in in connection with um with Thieda, I, I mention certain artists that that he mentions and and Grunwald in particular and try and, and show how within a completely figurative painting there are moments that that I think open up that dimension of the hypersensible mm-hmm. so what I would want to say is that even within a particular let's say a particular painting there can be a an aspect, a, a moment of that painting that escapes its own mimetic um, macro structure, if you will. And I the example of a certain ways. It, 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 it's uh, it, the point of departure is the question of the fold in Chieda's work and the way in which he points to uh, certain Renaissance painters as having, and of course, one thinks of the late Renaissance in particular as having sort of developed this technique of the fold uh, in, in, in fabric, in, in clothing, uh, that that uh, or or in. For example, in in the hair of a particular figure, that um, is painted in such a way that um, there is something absolutely fluid, liquid, if you will, that enters the painting, uh, or there is something yet yeah, absolutely floating that suggests that is suggested through the the, the almost infinite. Um, uh, uh, repetition of of folds. So you have um, a sort of marine element that is introduced in the painting, although, of course, water is nowhere uh, indicated or signified, if you will. Do you see what I mean? So there is an ability to uh, use something that is uh, uh, the materiality of which clearly belongs in something that we recognize as clothing or hair, and yet uh, there is... Uh, through the way in which they are depicted, an absolute fluidification uh, and therefore um, 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 a marine element that is introduced in the painting. And that, that, to an extent, becomes overwhelming. And that, I think, is a a metaphorical operation where something is used to make a connection with something that it clearly is not you mm-hmm.
0: See what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Oh, how about? I mean, I was I was actually thinking of um, the cave paintings. You know, at, uh, oh, okay. you That's know that far. Yeah, um, Chauvet or Lascaux. Right. Um, those seem to be the sorts of works that would fit very nicely, I think, into your view.
1: Yes, well, thank you. I had not, have <laughs> say I had not gone that far back. Um, no, but that's, I mean, every time I have a... This- with some they come up with, you know, examples that, uh, I mean, uh, the other day I was having a discussion about uh, the, the, the lack of um, the presence uh, of, of music in, in the book Yes, what, and, uh, and where music would figure and uh, uh, there's a part of me that's quite reluctant to talking about music because I'm simply not a, a musician at all and not trained at all in, in music and and feel like a, a bit of an impostor talking about music but all along I did have music Music as a possible paradigm for metaphor itself. Now, there is a certain, of course, music that is itself mimetic, and we know very well that certain melodies are supposed to evoke, you know, uh, certain uh, certain experiences or, or even certain aspects of nature. But there's also uh, uh, more, perhaps, in more contemporary music, uh, uh, a relation to music that is completely outside anything that is recognisable, and yet opens up. Um, that, that domain of the hypersensible so in, in a sense I, I, I could understand music as being the very paradigm of the metaphorical operation that I see as, as uh, intimately bound up with this other dimension of the sensible that, that I call the hypersensible
0: so to to return to the idea of uh, the relation between metaphor and, and truth right um, uh, you know standardly of course there's we distinguish you know literal truth versus figurative truth and you're saying there's a it's a there's a another exactly as I understand it it's it's a it's another kind of
1: literal truth
0: is would that be correct?
1: Yes, yes if by literal we mean um, reality. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. But it requires uh, a real modification of our relation to the world. So it's a, another domain of experience. It's not one that is continuous with the previous one. So yes, it would be a third domain of, a third domain of, of truth. And um, and I I use the word I'm I'm not I don't hesitate to use that word because there are worthy predecessors I think who have who have used it without feeling that they were as it were. Uh, betraying the very notion of truth, and uh, uh, again, I was I was mentioning Danto. He 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 has no problems using that that word in connection with with art and with uh, transfiguration. And um, but of course, you know, Heidegger would be another example. And the first, uh, perhaps, would be would be Nietzsche, right? For whom art, on one level, is a way of preserving us from truth. But the pr- truth that he has in mind is Platonic truth, and yet. Opening up this other truth, which is the truth of what he calls the earth, which is precisely outside the distinction and opposition between the sensible and, and the supersensible.
0: Could could you expand a little bit on on Nietzsche's role in in? Um, sure. In, yeah, in, in providing a basis for this n- non-mimetic.
1: Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean. I mean. I, I do think that um, this this. Um, mimetic paradigm really you know, begins to shift and be called radically into question with nature and and the relation between art and truth is in the process also entirely reconfigured and and i wouldn't say simply abolished right so truth as as i was saying truth is no longer identified with the supersensible with the intelligible no matter how we want to define the intelligible, because I think the way that Kant defines it is different from the way that Plato defines it, and yet the matter, what matters, I think, is the emphasis on the intelligible. So truth is no longer identified with the supersensible, sensible uh, with the unchanging or the eternal, but with the sensible, with the coming, with contingency and, and chance. And this is what he calls you know, the reversal of, of Platonism. Um, but uh, insofar as the very idea of the sensible world made sense only within its opposition to the intelligible world or or the true world. The sensible itself needs to be, Nietzsche claims, entirely reconceived. It needs to be reinvented. It needs to be revalued. So the sensible that we're, we're left with is no longer the sensible that has always been subordinated to the intelligible. And this is where art comes into play. Now We have art so that we don't perish from the truth, Nietzsche writes. Uh, art is the force that allows us to create new values and remain, as he says, true to the earth. But this notion of truth to the earth is, of course, very different from the truth that, uh, that he identifies with uh, Platonism, that is to say, with the the intelligible world. So, I, d- I do think that Nietzsche where opens up uh, a, a, another uh, another domain for, for thinking the connection between art, art, and truth.
0: So, this the to to pursue this the connection between uh, metaphor and truth. Um, uh, it, I would it would be good to uh, understand a little bit better. Um, the the truth that is got at um, through art or through this artistic vision um, no. it's it's not uh, essence no. I, I take it and no. uh, at no. least not essence in an Aristotelian sense yes. um, and and yet um, that's the sort of uh, of A view that um, that is suggested, for example, and i 'm not saying that you suggest it, but when you uh, in the example of uh, the the woman uh, a woman who has um, flower properties mm-hmm, right, mm-hmm. in a particular situation mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, we are not. I mean, a, a more traditional view would be we are getting at some sort of um, maybe we might say it's a truth about her. We probably say it's a figurative truth, but it because she isn't literally a flower. Right. And then somebody would might say, well, you know, we're getting at something essential about her, which she, you know, which we designate with the a, a flower-type concept. Yeah. Um, and you don't want to say that by doing that we are getting at an, an essence of some what? sort. Um, so how, how would you distinguish what we're getting at uh, when we describe somebody that way um, or, you know, have a work that is, you know, expressing the hypersensible? How, how would you distinguish that from the more you know ordinary way in which we would describe what it is that we are accessing.
1: Right. Now, I wouldn't have a problem with characterizing it as essence, if we didn't have a, a conception of essence that is fixed, unchanging, precisely essence normally has designated what is eternal, what is unchanging, what is of the order of being and not becoming, etc., right? It's always been located on that side. But if, by essence, we meant something that is more on the side of becoming, on the side of uh, a certain unfolding, on the side of uh, a certain aspect that under certain conditions cannot be seen, but under certain other conditions can uh, uh, emerge and come to the surface then I wouldn't have a problem calling it essence but I just don't want to confuse things by calling you know essence something that is the opposite of what's normally called essence so indeed the question is you know how would we how would we call that and I think that there is uh, in the case of Albertine sleep well, the example that, that you, you mentioned there is um, an and i can I say, not an essence Albertine, but an event Albertine, that uh, under certain conditions, at a particular moment, Albertine is able to uh, reveal it's herself in a way that when she's awake, when she's interacting with Marcel in, in a way that is determined by, of course, their practical life together, but also by his obsession with her possible infidelity, etc. She cannot be seen in that way. Uh, and it's only, yes, when she's asleep, when he can look at her from a certain distance, that then certain, how can I say, certain singular points in her, which are covered over by the ordinary points that configure her Uh, if you will, normally, can finally emerge. So one could say it's a flower, but under a different set of circumstances, it could be something very different. It could be an animal. It could be a thing. Do you you see what I mean? So it would be difficult to call it an essence, because it would only be um, under certain circumstances that this these virtualities, and I call them virtualities, can come to the surface. So there is, if you will, the actual Albertine, uh, or there is the actual woman, for example, in, and I make the connection between the two, uh, that that, that de Kooning may have painted in his series of uh, sort of women in the 1950s. And then there is the virtual woman, and the virtual woman is one that has all those possible connections with entirely unexpected other points, other things in the world, and that the artist brings together in a way that we recognize as real, that we recognize as being there, if you will. And that's, that's for me, that's very important that we don't see it simply as, oh, this is only uh, Marcel, or whether Marcel, the narrator, or Marcel Proust, or this is only de Kooning. Mm-hmm. She, isn't it extraordinary that in a woman there is also a sea? Uh, in the case of de Kooni, or also a flower.
0: In a sense, our our language fails us, I think.
1: Very much so. Very much so. And our language is, um, at at least when it comes to trying uh, inscribing this in a theoretical framework, is metaphysically overdetermined. So we are indeed struggling with a metaphysical inheritance that 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 uh, that is difficult to do away with, and we don't want to start speaking also a language that no one understands.
0: Exactly. I was I was just going to mention we don't also want to start inventing terms and and then get everybody confused.
1: Exactly. So hence my reluctance even with the word hypersensible. And if anyone could come up with a better word, you know, I'd be delighted if one to You know. Yep. Yeah.
0: Yep. Um so I th- I think we're we're starting to uh come to the end, uh running out of time here, but I, I did want to ask uh, a little bit about, about what you're um working on now and your um uh, future projects, in particular, I, I notice you're doing work in bioethics and, and biopolitics.
1: Right, right, right. Yeah. Um,
0: could you say something about that, and, and maybe well, about what what you're working on next?
1: Yes, the, the work in bioethics and biopolitics is is uh, um, a Leverhulme project. The uh, Leverhulme is a is a is a a, um, a funding organization in in England, uh, and so we have this project that is running over three years to organize conferences, and and we have two sort of research fellows associated with that. But my specific work, and it's the the, the manuscript that I'm completing now, it's almost finished, has to do with the, the ethics, the anthropology, and also the political economy of desire. So I have tried to move quite systematically from uh, a book of ontology that was uh, called Truth and Genesis to in which the relation between philosophy and science is addressed quite specifically to the, the question of the relation between philosophy and art and this is what we've been talking about today and i have more recently moved into questions of philosophical anthropology the relation between philosophy and, and ethics and also politics and political economy especially and the, the notion if you will around which all of this revolves is the notion of desire. So desire for me is a little bit the equivalent of metaphor, but in connection with questions of ethics and politics. Now, of course, it would take us a little while to say why that is and why that notion of desire matters, but that probably would be for another discussion.
0: Well, I would certainly look forward to it. Um, so, you know, I will, I will keep that in mind for, for, for future reference. Thank you. Um, well, I, I guess we are, we are at the end now, but uh, I wish to thank you very much for a very, uh, a very illuminating um, interview and a, and a wonderful little book.
1: Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.
0: Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.
1: Bye-bye.
0: You've been listening to an interview with Miguel de Baistigui about his new book, Aesthetics After Metaphysics, From Mimesis to Metaphor, just out from Rutledge as part of their Rutledge series in Contemporary Philosophy. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening.